Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, the head of the SEC recently predicted that a financial crisis caused by artificial intelligence is nearly unavoidable. Are investors adopting AI technology too quickly, or do the benefits outweigh the risks? Also this morning, two-thirds of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, and 80% of young adults say they're struggling or merely surviving financially. So what makes them largely optimistic about the future? And to your health this morning, the American Cancer Society has updated lung cancer screening guidelines to include more people, and the VA is encouraging those who have served to get themselves checked this Veterans Day. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Monday, November 6th, 2023. Welcome to Monday. Did you uh, did you go on a date over the weekend? Maybe a first date over the weekend? There is a new list that is causing quite a stir on social media. It is a list of 28 bad first date destinations. If you went on a first date this weekend, I really actually wish I had this list had had this list on Friday. I could have warned you about this, but uh, I have it today, so here is the list, um, or here is part of the list of these uh, 28 bad first date destinations. If you made the mistake of taking a first date uh, to any of these places, uh, then you can pretty much guarantee that there will not be a second date. <laughs> Some of the entries on the list of bad first date destinations include Olive Garden, the Cheesecake Factory, uh, Church, <laughs> a family reunion. Yeah, don't take a first date on a fam- to a family reunion. That's not a good. And Buffalo Wild Wings. Um, so, I now it does not. The list does not give uh, any ideas as what to as to what would be a good first date. Just things that would be, would be a bad first date. But I would have to say that some of those. Uh, I would have to agree with. Probably Olive Garden, not the best. Nothing wrong with Olive Garden necessarily, but not a place where you want to go on your first date or a family reunion. Yeah, that's cringeworthy. Um, Church? Okay, well, that might work depending on, you know, your uh, attitude, your mindset, uh, how religious you are and your date is and so on. I wouldn't necessarily completely scratch that off, but for a first date, it would be, uh, I don't know, that's a little iffy. Uh, they also say, don't take your date back to your house. That's probably not a good idea. So, um, The uh, list apparently uh, was inspired by a viral TikTok video showing a woman refusing to go on a first date at the Cheesecake Factory, and so somebody came up with the list. 28 bad first date destinations. Here's how to know if you uh, did not did not uh, hit it out of the park on that first date. If you get ghosted, a survey of over 1,000 millennials and Gen Zers found that nearly half of young adults have been ghosted, not necessarily by you know a uh, a dating partner where things have gone sour or something, but by a close friend. Even uh, nearly half of young, young adults have been ghosted by a close friend. Ghosting, uh, ghosting a friend is slightly more prevalent among women than it is men. Uh, let's see here. Thirty-four percent say they have been ghosted. Well, twenty-six percent say they have been ghosted after the first date. Thirty-four percent say they have been ghosted before a first date. And uh, 40% say they have even been ghosted by a potential employer. Um, Minneapolis, Miami, and Tampa, the cities where people are most likely to be ghosted. So, just kind of interesting there. Uh, What else is uh, going on here? Every day we have to have something to be worried about or fearful of. And here is what we are concerned with today here is uh, the story that we're supposed to be afraid of today a new spider species is spreading in north america a study out of clemson university says the new joro spider or horo spider is j-o-r-o so how do you pronounce that joro 
the Joro spiders are spreading beyond South Carolina, which is apparently where, I guess, the only place they've been found in the past. But now the population is spreading and could inhabit most of the eastern United States. The spiders, it says, are large, brightly colored, using their webs to travel in the wind. And yes, they are venomous, but researchers say they do not bite humans or pets unless they are cornered. So don't corner, a. if you see a large, brightly colored spider, don't corner it. Don't have to tell me twice. <laughs> no problemo there. No problemo. Not to corner the spider. I'm just not a big spider fan. No, not at all. Although uh, the flip side would be this. Uh, perhaps a spider's venom might actually be a better cure for what ails you men than Viagra. Better than Viagra. Now, we're talking specifically about the banana spider. Uh, one known side effect of a spite, uh, a bite from a banana, banana spider is, um, well, it provides the same effect as the little blue pill. That's one of the side effects, apparently, <laughs> of a bite from a banana spider. The problem is uh, this is a very painful version of that particular side effect um brazilian scientists though are attempting to use the venom to create a more natural alternative to viagra uh, because 30 percent of patients with that particular malady cannot take viagra for one reason or another uh that uh, is not an option so this new medication could potentially give those patients a different option. Instead of a pill, this would be a topical solution applied directly to the skin, and I'll just stop there. <laughs> they call it research inspired by biodiversity. Well, okay. There you go. <laughs> Alrighty. And this is kind of interesting. Among the first things you need to know this morning, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day, uh, apparently the idea of turning right on red may be something that is relegated to the dustbin of history if some folks have their way. The city council in Washington, D.C., has approved a ban on turning right on red that takes effect in 2025. The new mayor of Chicago, Brandon Johnson, is calling for a transition plan restricting right turns on a red light, but his administration has not provided specifics. The college town of Ann Arbor, Michigan, now prohibits right turns on red lights in the downtown area. And San Francisco leaders have recently voted to urge their local transportation agency to ban turning right on red across the city. And other major cities like Los Angeles, Seattle, and Denver have looked into banning the practice as well. The reason a dramatic rise in accidents involving pedestrians and bicyclists uh, and that is leading to a myriad of uh, policy and infrastructure changes. And um, the it's kind of interesting. The story from the Associated Press says moves to ban right on red have drawn some of the most intense sentiments, both pro and con. So this apparently is a movement that is picking up steam that turning right on red might be a thing of the past in the not-too-distant future, already will be in some cities across the country. I don't know what you think about that. Something to think about. There you go, some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Monday morning started. WFIN News, I'm Matt Demchek. 
Your WTOL 11 weather. Partly cloudy and windy today with a high in the mid-60s, mostly cloudy tonight, a low around 50. The Ohio State Highway Patrol says a Finley man was one of two people killed in a plane crash in Marion County. The Highway Patrol said the plane crashed in a field about nine miles southwest of Marion Municipal Airport. The single-engine Piper Cherokee 6 sustained major damage and the two occupants suffered fatal injuries. The Highway Patrol identified the left front seat occupant as a 71-year-old man from Finley and the right front seat occupant as a 70-year-old man from Bowling Green. The Highway Patrol says the plane crash remains under investigation. Millstream Career Center in Finley has been awarded a nearly $3.5 million grant under the Career Technical Construction Program through the state of Ohio. Director Pam Hamlin says this will allow them to expand and enroll more students. We will be expanding and adding on to the building a manufacturing facility as well as um, extending our engineering and robotics lab. So that will add capacity for students to be served at Millstream. Millstream currently serves students from 15 school districts in Hancock, Putnam, and Wyandotte counties. Get more on their upcoming expansion and the story on our website. The University of Finley's Helping Hands Food Drive shattered its previous record. The university held the annual food drive last week, bringing together community members, local middle schools, and the campus community to fight hunger. And when the food totals were tallied, it was announced that Helping Hands brought in nearly 250,000 pounds of food to be donated to Chopin Hall. And that's more than 11,000 additional pounds of non-perishable food items compared to last year's total. Get more on the food drive and how you can help out in the story on our website. The Ohio State football schedule for next season has been released. The Buckeyes will open the season August 31st at home against Southern Mississippi. I like the Buckeyes in that one. Big Ten opener is September 28th on the road against Michigan State. And how about those two road games? At Oregon, October 12th. At Penn State, November 2nd. And of course, the season will end against the Wolverines. That game in Columbus on November 30th. The Buckeyes host Michigan State on Saturday. Don't forget, you can always get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. Well, in a recent study by fintech firm Broadbridge, 71% of senior executives say that artificial intelligence has significantly changed how they manage their financial services. Is this a good thing? Jim Carp is a digital strategies expert with Raymond, a leading financial and business advisory firm. Uh, Jim, probably no surprise that AI has become a player in the financial services space because it seems to be so pervasive everywhere these days. But I have to wonder if we are being a bit premature jumping in with both feet, given that the even the experts who develop AI say, say that this is far from a complete finished product. Absolutely. Yes, you're, you're correct. And it's, uh, you know, if you think about it, it's probably today's November 1st, right? So it's close to a year ago right now that ChatGPT came out. Yeah. And uh, the paradigm has significantly shifted and it definitely has a lot of attention. And, and with that kind of comes a, a cycle. And the cycle is there's a lot of euphoria. People get excited. Uh, people start experimenting with it. And then basically, it, sometimes it doesn't deliver to expectations. Uh, basically, people over-anticipate what they can get from it. And then you kind of fall into a, a valley of despair, disillusionment. And then eventually, there's a build-out. So right now, I'd say we're at the peak of all the enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. There's been over 50,000 organizations that have registered as artificial intelligence organizations since last May. Hmm. So if you think about it, there's a lot of players in the space right now. There's going to be a big shakeout and uh, we'll figure out what products and how it's going to work going forward. But I'm very optimistic for the future for the artificial intelligence. Uh, It's interesting, especially what caught my eye is uh, using AI in the financial services space, because even the head of the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, said a couple of weeks ago that a financial crisis caused by artificial intelligence is nearly unavoidable in the next decade. His words. Would you go that far? Yeah, well, you know, there, there's a lot to it. And if, if you think about it, for, if we step back and, and kind of go a little bit through the history of everything, the algorithms have been out there in the marketplace for years. Fair so point. If you think back, if you think back, I, you know, time time's kind of marched along here. So I'm going to say 25 years ago, there was a huge 400-point drop in the Dow unexpectedly one day. Right. And that was due to computer computer trading. 
And so it, as time has progressed and everything has gone on, there, there is a lot of uh, pervasive technology, artificial intelligence built into the systems today. And, uh, it, you know, there's, for example, uh, organizations have actually run uh, glass lines, you know, your fiber optics from major cities and everything so that they can get a timing on a trade microseconds faster than anybody else. Hmm. So yeah. the technology has been out there for a long time. It definitely has changed it. Um, if you don't have the technology, it's going to be pretty hard to compete going forward. Yeah, you know, straight up. You so s- I would I would agree with them. I think I think there's going to be some some ups and downs mm-hmm. and some volatility as a result of the artificial intelligence, no doubt. So, but you uh, say that you are excited for the possibilities. What are some of those possibilities? What is the potential here of AI to have a positive impact on investors? So, so as a as a person on the street without access to the artificial intelligence, it's probably not going to change a whole bunch. But it's going to change stuff for like the hedge funds, a lot of the bigger players, mm-hmm. and it'll cascade down into the retail well, uh, sure. aspects for financial. Yeah. you know, from as time goes on. But you know, you know, for example, there's an organization that I'm familiar with. Uh, it's called Tradesmith, and they developed an artificial intelligence algorithm that basically predicts the future for where they think the stock's going to be in four weeks. So what they do is they, they run a series of uh, patterns and then be able, they're able to look out to the future and say, based on the history, based on the ups and downs, all the stuff, we think that this, uh, this product's going to be here uh, or this, this security is going to be at this point at a certain point in time. So, you know, people can then play the options market and they can buy and sell different options based on, you know, in essence, speculation. So that's one aspect for it. The other aspect is, is if you look at from uh, artificial intelligence uh, in dealing with trades, is there's a lot of um, middlemen, in essence, mm-hmm. that can leverage the patterns and the technology to be able to, uh, again, manage the, a good part of the market and provide stability for it as well. So I think the only thing that's going to limit our ability with artificial intelligence is how creative we are. And, and the reason I say that is the paradigm shifted. And, uh, you know, if you think back when everything started with computers many, many years ago, we've had quite a few changes. One, the hardware is significantly better now, so mm-hmm. it's faster. you got the, the quantum computing that's coming on board. Yeah, You've got the communications to be able to move data back and forth very quickly. And so they, that the pipes have opened up so you can transmit a lot more data and the software has become much more sophisticated. So as a result, historically, you needed to be able to interface with the computer on the computer's terms. So you needed to be a COBOL programmer or you needed to be able to uh, be a Python programmer. But the paradigm switched now with natural language processing and now it's reverse. The computer is, is, I won't say smart enough because it's it's programmed Mm -hmm. uh, along those lines, but the computer now understands us. Yeah. So the interface that's going into artificial intelligence is changing the game so that the average person on the street, depending upon how creative they are and what they're thinking, they can interact with the artificial intelligence and change the game. So it's not going to be just something for somebody in the sky anymore who has a certain knowledge, it could be for everybody. Yeah. Uh, as you mentioned, it's only been about a year or so that we ha- we've been introduced to this technology, and yet it has caught on with lightning speed. Can you think of any other type of technology that has been ad- uh, accepted or uh, adapted or integrated as quickly as this has been? You're correct. This is the quickest adoption in history. And, you know, if, if you look back at cell phones, radio, TV, yeah. you can go back and look at all the, the different things. Facebook, how quick did that go? And, and all the different aspects. They, uh, chat GPT in by like December last year, and I, I don't have the number sitting right in front of me. It was like a, a, a million adopters within a week. Yeah. And they've and never in, seen anything like that before in history. And especially in the financial services industry, which tends to be uh, more conservative and slower to adopt uh, new technologies, it's it's been embraced so quickly, which is phenomenal as well. So, again, circling back to what we were talking about before, where, where we started, 
what are the downsides associated with all of this? We talk about the pros. What are the cons? Well, you know, some of the cons are is, is uh, people people might be critical of, of something like a chat GPT, but there's there's 30 other uh, items that are out there as well. There's Bard. You can go on. There's Claude. All these different large language models that are out there. So so the downside is, is one, if you've heard about what they call hallucination, and, and that is, is that, for example, if you watch the 60 minute segment, they, they, uh, had an example with the, from Google where basically the, uh, the artificial intelligence made up stuff when it didn't really have an answer. So that's one, mm-hmm. one aspect of it. Mm-hmm. The other thing is too, is like if you, if you go into, let, let's say chat GPT, you can put in the same question four times and get four different answers. Yeah. And it was developed that way intention, intentionally. So the other aspect of it is too, is, is that, uh, it's biased. And what, what I mean by that is there's, you know, here in the West, we have a certain way of uh, thinking in the East uh, part of the world, they have a different way of thinking. So if you're a programmer or somebody that's been a curator in developing these large language models, they're going to be biased based on who put the input into the system. Mm-hmm. So that that's the, the one thing. So my, my word of caution is, is that Whatever input you put into and whatever output you take, you take with a grain of salt. Uh, Are, because it's not, the artificial intelligence today is still growing, it's still maturing, yeah. and uh, it's not going to be you know it's, it's not going to be the single point of truth, uh, you know, for everybody from that aspect. Are there? I, I think another thing that. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, are there security risks as well? I mean, that's where I was just going to go. That's where that's where yeah. I was going to go. So. You know, um, many, many years ago, there was a gentleman named Andy Gross, and he was the, the president and lead for uh, Intel, uh, which designed a lot of the chips and everything for the computers. And he, he basically said, only the paranoid survive. <laughs> and so that, that's my recommendation when, you, when you're dealing with these types of tech, uh, technology is artificial is, an, is a phenomenal tool. It's going to shake out. We're gonna, it's going to grow. It's going to mature. And it's going to definitely have a big impact on society. There's absolutely no doubt about it. But in the in the near term, from a privacy perspective, is you need to be careful with what you put into these public large language models. Uh, now, for example, ChatGPT has been trained up to I think it's sometime in I think it's like September 2020. They stopped training it. Okay. So if you put in questions to ChatGPT today about what's going on in the Middle East, it won't have an answer. Okay. Hmm. Uh, but what they do is they do curate it. And so all the input that you put into it, humans are looking at, and then they're deciding if it goes into the large language model or not. So anything with like private information, social security numbers, bank account numbers, anything in a communication or whatever you're doing, you have to be careful as to what you put in there. And then it basically goes back to the basic tenets of uh, basic sc- uh, computer security. You want to have secure passwords that are long using four different quadrants. And the quadrants are uppercase, lowercase, numeric, and special characters. And the longer you make it, the, the safer you're going to be. Uh, a lot of times I would recommend for somebody, if they're going to connect in, is to leverage what they call a virtual private network. It's a VPN. Mm-hmm. You can get them on your mobile devices. You can get them at home. They're very user-friendly. They're very simple to deploy these days. And basically, that's an end-to-end encryption so people can't, in essence, like eavesdrop on your communication as you're going back and forth. Uh, another recommendation I make is public Wi-Fi. If you're sitting at a Starbucks and it doesn't ask for a password, you can get what they call the classic man-in-the-middle attacks, which basically means somebody's going to eavesdrop, steal your data. So you yeah. want to be careful when you're on uh, on a public thing. Uh, one other thing is, too, is in, this is this might seem a bit extreme for a lot of people, but a lot of people now, uh, when they're doing their finances, let's say you're interacting with a bank, uh, a broker, or if you're buying or selling cryptocurrencies, they'll use what we call a single-purpose machine. And that 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 uh, let's say it's a computer, or let's say it's a laptop or an iPad, they'll only use that for those transactions. They'll yeah. they'll bring it up, they'll transact what they need to transact, and then they bring it down. They don't surf the web, they don't do emails. Mm-hmm. They, the only thing they do is communicate back and forth. Yeah. And so that, that can, you know, really help from a security perspective. Yeah. Uh, uh, one last thing is too, is I'd be re- real careful with social media, uh, what you're putting out there, what you're doing, because uh, there's a lot of people that are leveraging artificial intelligence that are a lot smarter than we are that are going to be able to figure out ways to get into your account. Yeah. 
Uh, I like what you said, a little paranoia, a little skepticism is definitely a good thing when it comes to this brave new world. Uh, no question. Again, right. Jim, Jim, Jim Carp is a digital strategies expert with Raymond, leading financial and business advisory firm. There is more about the work that you do on your website, right? www.raymond.com. Jim, thanks very much for taking the time, sharing your insight. We appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity and best of luck. Well, according to the latest surveys, nearly two-thirds of Americans report living paycheck to paycheck. And in a new Edward Jones survey, 80% of those between the ages of 18 to 34 view themselves as struggling or merely surviving in life. And although you wouldn't think that that paints a very rosy picture, Gen Next, as they are referred to, are still optimistic about their future. Edward Jones financial advisor Nolan Jeter joins us this morning. First of all, what are the factors that define this group that you have termed as Gen Next? Who are they? Yeah, Gen Nexters are folks in America that fall between the ages of 18 to 34. Uh, this, this is a very dynamic, very diverse group. About 50% of them are non-white right now. It's the most educated group we've ever had in generations in history, uh, with about one out of three uh, having some sort of college education, about one out of four having at least a bachelor's degree or higher. So really, really uh, fascinating, diverse group. And at the same time, super resilient. Uh, this study has found that this group of uh, next gen or gen nexters, sorry, are, um, you know, they, they, they want to work more. They want to take on extra jobs, extra incomes and things like that. And they're just willing to get out there and work for their goals. Yeah, you use that word resilience. And again, despite all of the headwinds, your survey finds that they are actually optimistic about the future, which is what really jumped out at me because I'm looking at that. I'm saying, based on what? How do they justify that optimism? Yeah, well, uh, there's a few reasons why. Number one, like I said, they're hard workers. So even though they don't really feel too good about where they are today, Mm -hmm. they do feel confident that they can reach it with more of that hard work and some financial coaching along the way. And also, I mean, their goals are a little bit different from what uh, traditional uh, American ideas usually are or, or older generations usually think about wealth, for example, like most people just think about wealth as a form of money and how much of that you have. But this group, even though money is a part of wealth, they also think wealth has a lot to do with comfort. So they think about their careers and their lifestyles. And they think if, if I have the type of lifestyle that allows me the comfort to be able to do what I want, travel how I want, see my loved ones how I want, they see that as a big part of the wealth equation. You know, it's interesting because I think every generation believes that they are going to sort of change the paradigm. I know certainly when I was that age, uh, I had that kind of an outlook. Uh, You look back at even the baby boomers when they were coming of age in the 60s, obviously a big change the world kind of mindset. So I'm wondering... When you look at this uh, outlook that these Gen Nexters have, how much of that comes from the enthusiasm and exuberance of youth and how much is actually uh, sustainable change? Well, that's a good question. There's always a a balance between the two, right? And and with this group, it's like they do want that comfort, that wealth, those goals that they want to shoot for, but they are pretty realistic about what it takes to get there in the sense that they Mm. do know it takes hard work in the sense that they do know that they probably need some financial coaching, financial mentorship along the way. Like for example, I actually have many clients who fall in the, uh, the gen nexter uh, generation. And when many of them experienced job losses over the past few years, like many Americans have, unfortunately, Many of the Gen Nexers, instead of like getting right back to work, they would say, you know what, Nolan, I'm going to take a month. I'm going to take two months just to kind of get my head back on my shoulders, just to kind of, you know, rediscover myself or just get, you know, what I need to do for myself before I get back into the the work uh, environment versus the older generations. I have, you know, clients in that those generations as well that experienced job loss. They got right back to it immediately. But the thing is, those Gen Nexers, they had the savings 
to do that. They have the savings to allow them to take that time off without, you know, dipping into retirement savings or throwing off any of their long-term goals. So there is certainly a level of optimism that comes from youth, but there's also a good deal of realism in regards to what it takes to achieve those goals and that level of comfort they desire. You know, this is also a group that, by and large, um, older folks have sort of looked down their nose at uh, in the sense of the perception of entitlement or the perception of... Um, having goals that aren't really achievable, that kind of thing. Obviously, from the data, uh, we can see that those are some assumptions that are not necessarily correct. Are there other areas where you can look at and say, hey, maybe some of our assumptions about these young adults uh, are, are maybe not in alignment with reality? Are there other uh, ways in which this uh, study defies those preconceived notions? Absolutely. I'll tell you, uh, outside of what you just said, I'll give you two that really stuck out at me. Uh, The first is that a lot of, there's a big assumption about Gen Xers that they don't really buy into the the, uh, American dream of what that traditionally means. Yeah. In actuality, they do. Like a lot of them do want home ownership. A lot of them do want to start families if they don't have children already. That's a big one that stuck out to me. And probably the biggest is the second one, which is that a lot of times we think about Gen Xers and think that they just want to do everything from their computers. They want to do everything from home or through social media electronically. And what this study found is that many of the Gen Xers actually feel like they're most valuable, they're most happiest moments come from in-person experiences with their loved ones Hmm. or even take it a step further with financial coaching and financial advisement. They do want to meet with a financial advisor face-to-face, which is really important for us at Edward Jones to know because we're, we're not like robo advisors here. We actually, you know, meet with clients and get to know them and what's important to them and work through those goals. So just knowing that, that, that the Gen Nexers are actually interested in that type of uh, engagement from their financial advisor means a lot to us. So uh, those are some of the biggest, I would say, in regards to those those assumptions about this group that this study kind of debunked a bit there. <laughs> some uh, interesting uh, data that, uh, again, defies expectations, perhaps, about young people, young adults between the ages of 18 to 34, these uh, Gen Nexters, as they are referred to in this Edward Jones survey, and their approach toward work and finance and everything that goes along to it, which basically, you look at this, and again, despite the headwinds, it really does give you a sense of optimism about the future. Where do folks get more information about this survey? If folks want to you know, kind of dig into the numbers, dig into the data a little deeper. I'm assuming you have this on your website, right? Absolutely. So our website is actually a great resource for anything financial. If you want to just learn about financial topics, but specifically as it relates to this study, you go to edwardjones.com slash financial future, and you'll find all the results of this study. And it's laid out in really plain English for anyone to read and understand and just get some really helpful insights on this Gen Nexer group. Nolan Jeter, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This is Good Mornings with Chris Oaks on 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com and 95.5 FM. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Now, this is all kinds of weird uh, I don't know. I just can't imagine how this is going to work out. But here is the uh, story. Uh, today's uh, broken news. Back in September, Katie Mathis moved in with her ex-husband and his new wife in order to co-parent their three children. I don't know, man. That Katie moved in with her ex-husband and his new wife to co-parent their three children. And now the story has a bit of a twist here. Katie is bringing in another roommate, her new boyfriend. So it's the four of them. She and her ex-husband with his new wife and her new boyfriend. Uh, Ms. Mathis and her boyfriend live in a detached apartment 
above her ex's garage. She says her kids love the arrangement and the unconventional family has seven cats, five dogs, and four fish tanks. Well, okay, um, but it's not necessarily the pets that raise my eyebrows on this. Uh, she admits, quote, I would be lying if I said it was an easy move, but uh, me, uh, some uh, some commenters applaud the uh, move over the the bitterness and anger that can come with the divorce. Me with no kids crying happy tears for strangers and the healthy relationship the kids will have with everyone involved, according to one uh, commenter on the uh, story online. I don't know. Could you do that? I just can't imagine that this is going to have a happy ending. You know, I maybe I, I just don't have an, enough faith in human nature, but a woman and her ex-husband live, living with... His new wife and her new boyfriend, man, that is either going to end badly or it's going to turn into a sitcom. One or the other. I'm not sure which one. Elsewhere in the broken news this morning, police are investigating following the arrest of a New Jersey elementary school custodian who is accused of tampering with students' food using his own bodily fluids. Using his own bodily fluids. You know what we're talking about here. Police say Giovanni Imprilizari Imprilizari posted videos of himself um, using his bodily fluids on cooking utensils and the students' food at Elizabeth Moore Elementary School in Upper Deerfield Township, New Jersey. He posted videos of himself doing this. He was just asking to be caught. Uh, Investigators say the custodian um, was uh, arrested on October 31st and hit with charges including aggravated assault, tampering with food products, and endangering the welfare of a child. Official misconduct was added to the list of charges a couple of days later as he awaits a detention hearing the local jail. I'm guessing he is out of a job. I'm just guessing. The report does not say that, but I would certainly hope so. Speaking of weird things involving food, employees of a McDonald's restaurant in Troutdale, Oregon, had to call police early Friday morning when a person tried to crawl into the restaurant through the drive through window. It's been a while since we've had one of those stories. It's not that that's entirely unprecedented, but it's been a while since we've had one of those stories in the uh, news. When the driver pulled up, they asked for a DoorDash order, but the employee said no such order had uh, had been prepared. The car then left and pulled around the drive through again. This time, the passenger got out and started yelling, cursing, and threatening employees. Uh, Zaria Frazier then tried to climb through the drive through window. When the county sheriff's deputy arrived, after being called by employees, they found Ms. Frazier stuck halfway through the window. <laughs> stuck halfway through the window. Uh, she was uh, pulled out and detained. The driver was arrested for DUI and reckless endangerment. So... How did I not know that there was some sort of intoxicating substance involved in this story? You climb through the uh, drive through window. Just a hint, there is a door. (laughs) You could have just walked in the door. Uh, Let's see. Now, this this next story, admittedly, and I'll I'll, uh, preface this by saying that this is not the type of story that is the general vibe that we usually try to stick to in the uh, broken news. Generally, it's not funny when people lose their life, and that's not the funny part of this story. Uh, But there is a part of the story that kind of made me chuckle, and so let me just give you the, the story here. This is out of Northern California, where police are warning the public of a dangerous suspect who they say murdered and decapitated a family member. 
Police in Santa Rosa responded on Thursday to reports of a homicide found a woman dead at the scene. Her head was not found. Cops are looking for Luis Gustavo Arroyo Lopez, who is their main suspect. The exact relationship of Mr. Arroyo Lopez to the deceased was not disclosed. But the local news reports say uh, Mr. Arroyo Lopez is believed to still be in possession of the victim's head. And it goes on to say he has a distinctive 420 tattoo with a marijuana leaf. (laughs) That's, That's how you can identify him. Or I'm thinking you can probably identify him by the severed head he's carrying around. <laughs> I mean, that's the part, the part that gets me. They, they, uh, you'll know when you see him, when you see his tattoo. If I see somebody who's carrying around a severed head, I'm not getting close enough to uh, examine his tattoo. I'm just saying. I'm thinking <laughs> that if you see someone with a severed head, you probably have your person. You probably have the guy. That's probably the guy. I'm just, I'm just saying, that might be the other identifying uh, <clears throat> characteristic there that you might want to be looking for. So just saying. And finally, <laughs> finally, in the not to diminish the uh, seriousness of the tragedy there. I mean, it is a, a tragedy, but uh, I'm thinking that he should be pretty easy to spot. Whether or not you can see the tattoo. And finally, in the in the broken news this morning, an otherworldly green liquid was seen spewing from manholes in New York City last week. I don't know if you heard about this. The slime created neon green puddles near the site of the, well, what used to be the World Trade Center site. A staff member at O'Hara's Restaurant and Pub said that city workers were testing a hotel sprinkler system using green foam, and that's what left behind the spooky goo. Um, but some users on social media where video footage of this neon green slime coming out of the manholes in New York City, some users had their own theories. Uh, one said, uh, this is how the... Ninja Turtles uh, arrive. <laughs> this is... <laughs> it's called Ooze, and that's how the Ninja Turtles came about. <laughs> that could be, too. I don't know. There you go. Uh, that is today's broken news report. An update on the odd and unusual side of the headlines. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Finley's Andy Ritz on becoming a Finley Rotarian. After 35 years working as a pediatrician in Finley, I wanted to give back to the community, but not at my job, but as a service that would reach many people. The best way to do this was for me to join Finley Rotary, and that's what I did in February of 2022. To become part of an organization that brings together business, professional leaders to provide community service and advance goodwill, contact Finley Rotary at FindleyRotary.org and click on This message provided by WFIN. And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. It seems that the trend to uh, cooking meals at home that we saw during the pandemic when restaurants were closed, we couldn't go out. People were rediscovering meals at home. Home Home-cooked meals were like all the trend. Yeah, that's over. Uh, According to the latest data, and this is in a a Gallup survey, they looked at trends across 142 countries, not just in this country, but around the world, Um, specifically in North America, we prepare 8.4 meals per week at home in 2022 or in 2023 as compared to nine and a half meals back in 2020. So we're going out to eat more often now that we can. And uh, we seem to be getting away of that uh, trend of home-cooked meals. What I thought was interesting in this is that the gender gap in the kitchen 
uh, is widening worldwide. Women prepare 4.7 more meals per week than men worldwide. But now that's globally. But in this country, Americans, uh, the gender gap in the kitchen is getting narrower. In North America, women cook 1.7 more meals than men per week. So that's some kind of good news there, I guess. One thing that uh, the pollsters point out, returning to the office might be contributing to eating out more. Americans spent over 20% more at restaurants than on groceries uh, in 2022, the last full year available. So make of that what you will, but the idea that we were going to somehow get back to the basics of home-cooked meals and this would be a lasting trend even after the pandemic, yeah, not so much. Well, this may not come as a surprise, but lung cancer is the deadliest form of the disease among veterans, with November being Lung Cancer Awareness Month and November 11th specifically being National Lung Cancer Screening Day. Obviously, that corresponds with Veterans Day, and this emphasizes, gives us the opportunity to uh, uh, to uh, highlight the VA's commitment to delivering best-in-class care to veterans. They are uh, joining in the observance of Lung Cancer Screening Day. And joining us is Dr. Chris Slator, uh, Chief uh, Consultant at the National Center for Lung Cancer Screening at the Veterans Health Administration. Uh, Dr. Slator, uh, talk a little bit about the impact of lung cancer, specifically in the veteran community, and the importance of screening, the critical importance of screening. Yeah, so over 8,000 veterans uh, are treated for lung cancer in VA facilities, and more broadly, over 130,000 Americans uh, died in 2022 from lung cancer. Um, But as a VA doctor and to probably lots of members of your audience, uh, those aren't just uh, numbers to me, they're actual names. Mm -hmm. So lung cancer screening has really emerged as an effective way to reduce the chance that people die of lung cancer. So with screening, we're looking for lung cancer at its earliest stages before it's spread to other parts of the body so that we can uh, find it and then treat it using more effective therapies. So VA is really committed to making sure that every veteran who might be eligible for lung cancer screening uh, hears about it and helps them make a decision about whether it's right for them. Well, that was actually what I was going to ask. What is the VA's goal for National Lung Cancer Screening Day? Yeah, so uh, November is Lung Cancer Awareness Month, and as you said, Lung Cancer Screening Day is on Veterans Day. We were so excited about that, we're actually turning it into Lung Cancer Screening Week. So across uh, many of our VA facilities, we're really ramping up efforts to make sure that all veterans hear about lung cancer screening. So we're working uh, with the White House Cancer Moonshot Initiative, uh, the American Cancer Society, the American College of Radiology, go-to foundation to make sure that all veterans and and really all Americans um, hear about lung cancer screening so uh, they can really start making decisions about it. Now, I I am not a medical professional, but it seems as though lung cancer screening is is something that is relatively new. I mean, one of the reasons why, is my understanding, one of the reasons why this has been so difficult to treat is because it's been so difficult to catch in its earliest stages. So what uh, what does a lung cancer screening entail, and and what uh, are the uh, offerings with respect to lung cancer screening? Kind of walk us through this. Yeah, so you're exactly right. So lung cancer uh, usually shows up late, um, and when it does show up late, um, uh, the treatments we have for it are much less effective. Right. The idea behind lung cancer screening is using a CAT scan, which is really just a fancy X-ray. Uh, that takes a 360-degree picture of the lungs to find lung cancer at its very smallest, very earliest stage uh, when it's still uh, uh, much more treatable. So in VA, we're uh, making sure that every veteran who's eligible for lung cancer screening uh, hears about it. We're also really uh, working overtime to make sure that people who still use cigarettes and are at high risk of lung cancer um, hear about all the resources uh, and take advantage of those that the VA offers to help them quit smoking. Now, obviously, screening is only part of the equation. It's certainly a very important part of the the equation. But if there is a diagnosis, then talk a little bit about 
the treatment options, and I know the VA has been doing uh, quite a bit of lung cancer research and, and working on innovative treatment options for patients. So there are several different treatments for lung cancer. Uh, depends on um, kind of what stage it is, which is really a measure of how far it's spread outside the lungs. So in lung cancer screening, we're really focused on trying to find it as early as possible when surgery is the best treatment. Uh, so we actually you know, cut the lung cancer out. And people who can get surgery are uh, uh, much more likely to uh, still be alive uh, five years after diagnosis. If lung cancer is found later, uh, we can offer radiation. Uh, we can also offer uh, chemotherapy. And there are, um, gosh, like almost every day, it seems like there's a new therapy that's being offered for people with advanced cancer to actually slow down and actually kill the cancer cells directly uh, so that, that we're actually seeing uh, uh really big improvements, um, even in people, uh, even for people with late stage cancers these days. Now, we're talking about this uh, in the context of veterans and the VA. And again, with good reason, as we mentioned, it is the deadliest form of the disease among veterans, lung cancer. But is there a different, I mean, this is a message really for the general population as well. What is the difference in the cancer journey of a veteran as compared to the general population? Is it substantively different? We hope so. We really in VA are dedicated uh, to being experts in health care um, and letting veterans be experts in who they are, not navigating you know, complicated health care systems. So in VA, we have lung cancer screening coordinators who are responsible for guiding veterans and helping them throughout that journey uh, from the time that they get uh, uh, determine if they uh, are eligible for lung cancer screening, uh, actually getting the CAT scan for screening, uh, coming back year after year for their annual test. Um, and then if they have signs of cancer, that they really move quickly and effectively uh, to the diagnosis and treatment stages. We're really committed in VA to making sure that no veterans fall through the cracks uh, when they're undergoing lung cancer screening. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Chris Slator, Chief Consultant at the National Center for Lung Cancer Screening at the Veterans Health Administration. As we mentioned, November Lung Cancer Awareness Month, November 11th, National Lung Cancer Screening Day. And where can folks get more information about uh, cancer care within the VA system? Yeah, so the best way is to talk to your own healthcare provider. And, and again, that goes for veterans and non-veterans. Right. Uh, for veterans, a good website is cancer.vc. VA.gov. And for non-veterans, I would recommend going to the American Cancer Society website, which is cancer.org. Dr. Slator, thank you very much for uh, taking the time. We appreciate it. Yes, thanks for being interested in lung cancer screening in the VA. And with that, we finish up our podcast for today. I want to thank all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. And remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each and every day on the show at our webpage, that, of course, goodmornings.net. So check us out online. Coming up tomorrow on the program, America is a nation of immigrants. But have we ever been particularly good at it? We'll talk about how and why politics gets in the way of policy. So until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.